So hey, this morning we're going to be finishing up uh, our series in the book of James. Um, we've, it's been a slow go through this series. I started in October of last year in James chapter 1. And uh, we've slowly, as I've been filling in for Matt on the weekends that he's been away, we've now made it to James chapter 5. You know, the book of James is not necessarily the easiest book in the world because it's so much about doing. It's so much about being. One thing I really like about James is James is a real practical guy. As a mechanic, as a guy who works with his hands and uses a sledgehammer rather than a golf club, um, I get it. The simplicity. But it's not necessarily easy simplicity. In chapter 1, he, he encourages, encouraged us <clears throat> as we go through trials and sufferings. He says, in, 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 to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And it talked about the gift of wisdom that God wants to impart to his people. That we only need to ask. It also talks about knowing and doing. Knowing the will of God and that we're to, war, to, to step out when we know what we're to do. It talks about those who, who know what to do and don't being like someone looking in the mirror and turning away and looking at themselves and not being able to recognize themselves. Chapter 2, we talked about, about sins of partiality, putting people on pedestals or elevating them higher in your minds or, or your opinion of them based on their wealth or their status or their standing, their position. And then the, the difficult discourse in a way about where James tells us that faith without works is dead and, 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 and how our faith, we're justified by our faith in Jesus Christ upon our profession and we're to act out our faith in fear and trembling and faith that works as Abraham did, as Rahab did. Faith that works. In chapter 3, he kind of puts us all to the wall with our speech, with our mouth. He describes the words of our mouth as a bit, as a rudder, and as a spark each capable of much good and also each capable of much disaster. He, he, he actually he says to us about regarding our mouths that with our mouths we bless the Lord and with the same mouth we curse mankind made in the image of God and it ought not be so. It's against nature. In chapter 4, <clears throat> we talk about worldliness, that we can't be living a life to honor God when we've not set our aim to be in the light. We cannot have one foot on the canoe and one foot on the dock. We all know what happens. Splash. Disaster. And he talks also about, about setting our plans before the Lord. Bringing our plans before the Lord. Letting Him guide our steps. Not to step out and stuff without seeking the will of the Lord. In chapter 5, as we start out here, he's going to talk about the rich. So starting off in verse 1 through 6, he says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wow. If that didn't make you feel all warm and cuddly, I don't know what will. <laughs> you know, throughout, throughout, so far throughout the book of James, most of the discourse has been brothers, brothers, brethren. It's to, to the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. Instructions for you. I'm not actually convinced that this is specifically to that. He's talking about ungodly gain. He says to weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. For those of us who keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, we have an eternal hope and a future and we need not weep and cry and weep and howl. Our hope is eternal, not temporal. But this, I believe that this is speaking to the ungodly rich in this world. We all see it. They might as well weep and howl for their miseries are coming, he's telling us. Their hope is depleting. Their hope is fading. Their hope is gone. Therefore, they're to weep and howl. In regards to their riches, James says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are calling against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord of hosts weep and howl one because the treasure has been laid up wealth on this earth is not supposed to be laid up when i think of laid up i think of a derelict vessel we all remember that that tugboat that used to be out here it sat out in the middle that big green thing it was laid up it didn't do anything it was abandoned my understanding is the thing is sitting on the bottom now and that's what happens. Things get laid up and they fall into disuse, disrepair, and are no longer useful. Something that once had value and a purpose becomes useless. Matthew, or John, Matthew, John, I was going to say James, but actually I want to say Jesus in Matthew. He said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in. For where your treasure is, there your heart is always. Wealth is not to be stored up and, and, and kept to oneself. Piled up and amassed as we see so often in our culture and in our world. Secondly, he says, weep and howl your miseries are upon you because a fraudulently gained wealth. He talks about wages that have been withhold from the laborers who mowed the fields. These are the guys, they're crying out, they're, <coughs> you kept back and they're crying out against the rich. And the cries of their harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You know, we know this well, much wealth in the world has been gained by fraud. Much wealth has been with, withheld wages or, or what have you. As God's people, with our money, we should be paying our bills. We should be people who pay our fair wages. 
we should be people that honor God with our money. For those of us who are on the other side of the equation, maybe we've been ripped off, maybe we've been hurt, maybe we've been wronged. I love the reminder that the Lord of hosts, that is the commander of all armies, the commander of the heavenly realm, the Alpha, the Omega, the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings, he hears the cries of the oppressed. He cares about those who are oppressed. The wealthy are to weep and howl because of decaying wealth, laid up, fraudulent, and decaying. He first says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. You know, uh, in the first century, wealth sometimes would be an accumulation of storehouses of maybe grains or, or food matters or flour or what have you was a place that wealth could have been stored in. The idea here is that it's gone bad. The roof failed on the bunker silo and it's been penetrated with water and what was a useful crop of grain now is moldy and rotting and it's just becoming dirt. Isn't that true of so much stuff in our lives these days can easily become that? My house can rot away. My cars can rot away. Both my vehicles have rust on them. One even has holes. They're rotting away. They're decaying. They're declining. You know that beater that I drive? This is a prime example. That beater that I drive, when someone bought it, they probably paid $30,000 for it 20 years ago. I paid $2,000 for it the other day, and it's given me a couple years of cheap transportation. It's decaying. It doesn't have a sustaining value. It's laid up. It's useless. It's rotting. Then James talks about gold and silver have corroded. I find this very interesting because gold and silver are very, very high value metals, are they not? In their purest form, they essentially don't corrode. You know, my replacement wedding ring, because I destroyed my first one with squishing it, I still have it, but this is silver. Um, silver, essentially, it tarnishes a little bit, it seals over, and the decaying process essentially stops. With gold, it gets a little bit hazy. It loses its shine, sealed in, decay essentially stops. There's a reason that, that coins, especially before the, the advanced alloys of today, the coins were silver and gold. They were of high value. They didn't corrode. They didn't become nothing. That's what I, a buddy, a guy I worked with for some time, he moved here from England. He said it was not uncommon to go to the beaches and places with a metal detector and find Roman coins from the first century or first or second century, early, early Rome. And you know what? You could still see the insignia on them and they were, still had their shape because the silver and gold corroded so slowly and broke down so slowly, has such high worth. So I find it very interesting that James talks about gold and silver corroding. I actually like how the King James says the word corroding. It says cankered. It reminds me of a canker sore. I get canker sores when I don't get enough sleep. And if you pull your lip back and look in the mirror, you get this, like, this round ring that raises up with like, this pain that can bleed and get infected. And it's painful. 
He's talking about wealth is, that's laid up and has been found fraudulently. It's been cut with tin. It's been cut with some aluminum that a little bit of salt water and it's gone. Essentially, the gold has been cut with sin and has become fool's gold. The value has depleted because of fraudulent gain. Secondly, weep and howl and have miseries because of how you've lorded wealth over the righteous man, the lowly man. He says in verse 5 and 6, you have lived on luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You know, probably one of two or three, two or three things was going on. One, the wealth, wealthy guy may have passed judgment on his servants and may have struck them down directly. Or maybe it's like someone, t- he hasn't paid bills and he's gone, someone's gone to court against them. And it's like me against O.J. Simpson's lawyers. And a disparity, there's no way of ever, of ever winning. Maybe that's what's gone on. Or maybe simply the righteous man turned the other cheek. I don't know, but er- this has been wealth that's been lorded over. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes we think about wealth and, you know, here's a tough discourse about wealth, about the dangers of wealth and to weep and howl about it. It's not sinful in itself to have wealth. You know, I look at the pages of scripture and there are some pretty wealthy dudes there. Look at Abraham. Abraham was a wealthy, wealthy man. In fact, when Abraham and Lot, after they had come out of Egypt, and he and his wife and Lot, they, they, they came into the Negeb, it says in Genesis 13. It says, now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed from Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he made the, an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so the land could not support them both. These guys had much wealth, much livestock. The land, there wasn't enough land to feed their animals. And strife was actually coming between their servants, their, their herdsmen, because they, they couldn't get to the water, they couldn't get food for their flocks. So what happened? Abram said to Lot in verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. It's not the whole land before you. Abram very graciously said, separate yourself from me. If you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. Lot lifted his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley, which was well watered everywhere like a garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt, he says, in the direction of Zoar. You know, for those of us who have been in Israel, um, the Jordan Valley is a good-sized valley. It's, you know, I think it probably took us uh, from Jericho to the Galilee. It's probably maybe an hour, two-hour drive, hour and a half, two-hour drive in a bus. So it's a good-sized valley. That's where Lot settled. It was green. It was lush. But you know, something very interesting happened if you look at the story of Lot and you look at the story of Abraham. Abram, eventually to be Abraham. 
We know well the mistakes that Abram made. He was not a perfect man by any way, shape, or form. But he honored God, and he kept a contrite heart before God, so much so that he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son, believing that God would raise him from the dead. And in a way, he literally did by providing the sacrificial lamb at the top of the mountain. But what did Lot do? If you go and turn to Genesis chapter 13, I tripped across this in my quiet times a week and a half ago or something. And I thought, wow, because Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east, thus separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan. Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I find it very interesting if we look at the account of what happened with Lot. He set his tent at the place of sin. He habitated, he made his dwelling, his home place, at the place of sin. We know well it cost him his wealth. It cost him his home. It cost him his family. It cost him the purity in his relationship with his children. It ruined him by settling in the place of sin. Abraham, another wealthy guy, though he sinned, like David, he repented and was useful unto the Lord, and therefore his wealth was useful unto the Lord, and he had a great inheritance. In fact, in nations so innumerable that they can't be counted. And in a way, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, in a way, become part of his inheritance. You can go on with the list. We can talk about David. We can talk about Job. In the New Testament, we could talk about Nicodemus. Guys who loved the Lord, maybe made some mistakes, but honored the Lord with their lives and therefore their wealth. The issue there is not the size of the balance sheet or lack thereof. It's not if you don't have two pennies to rub together or if you got multi-million dollars in the bank. That's not what it's about. The question is, is where have you put your trust? Have we put our trust as God's people? Are we scared to take our eyes off Jesus Christ who paid the ultimate penalty for us on Calvary? And have we put it on our things and our abilities and our jobs, our status and our position? Speaking of the unrighteous wealthy, he says that their hearts have been fattened. They're out of shape to spiritual things. As I think about this bit of passage and I think about it for me as a believer, my question is, is am I reminded or am I living as a steward of God's resources, not as an owner? We do not own what the Lord has allowed us to manage. I was thinking about this. If it's interesting, we're called to have God first in our resources. That means that at the beginning of the month after we get our month end pay and we lay it out, we put God as the first line, not as the last line, if there's leftovers. We trust God with our wealth and our resources because our God will supply all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. 
You know, scripture in the Old Testament talked about a tithe. In fact, Abraham gave a tenth, a tithe to the priest Melchizedek. I probably pronounced that wrong. It's a great principle. In the New Testament, it, talks, it doesn't talk about a specific amount, but that honor God with your resources. You know, uh, if I was to put a renter in my home and I wanted a property management company to deal with it for me so I didn't have to deal with any headaches, do you know what? They charge 10% to manage it and give me 90 God's called us to give him a tithe of what's his, to give back to him of our resources. He lets us take 90-ish as management fees and use to his glory and his honor. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and then all, and his righteousness, and then all these things will be taken care of. The Lord will take care of you. He will meet our needs. You know, we are the wealthy in the world. Some of us are wealthier than others. Some of us struggle month to month and some of us don't. But Paul in his letter to Timothy said in chapter 6 in the first Timothy, for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. That's what we're called to do with our resources. To do good, be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Store up our treasures in heaven where they cannot be corroded, where they cannot decay. I was reading this week and I, I liked what Warren Wearsby said. He said, it's good to have things that money can buy provide you have what money cannot buy. So let's honor God with your stuff. Let's honor God with our stuff. I find it actually, on a little side note, I find it very interesting that James wrote this to the 12 tribes, Hebrew believers, just around the time or slightly before the temple was overtaken and Rome cleared out Jerusalem and the temple was burnt down and the temple mount was torn apart to retrieve the gold. It's very interesting. Even the, the, the buildings that we use to serve the Lord in where we come together, they're not ours and they're not, they can be used to his glory, but let's not trust in them. Amen? Sorry. Then we move to chapter se- uh, verse 7, not chapter 7, there's only 5. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
We have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We are called to be patient, we're called to endure, and we're called to be long-suffering, all while waiting for the Lord. You know what? Christ can return this in the next second, and he might wait another 500 years. I actually don't think he's going to wait 500 years, but... He might. But we are to always live in eager expectation of the Lord coming with patience. We're always to keep our eyes on Jesus who being made perfect, it says in Hebrews, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Being designated by God as a high priest, our only intermediary. He says we're to establish our hearts. Establish has that idea of set on a firm foundation, permanence, to show something to be true, to prove, to demonstrate, to indicate the reality of something. Steadfastness and long-suffering is resolute, firm, unwavering, loyal, faithful, committed, devoted, dedicated, dependable, reliable, steady, true, and constant. Constantly keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Constantly looking for him to return. Expecting him, living our lives ready for that. And he talks about the patience of the farmer. I love this analogy. You know, I grew up hanging out on farms a fair bit uh, in my teen years. And something that you learn to understand about farmers is farmers are very, very hardworking people, are they not? But they're also people of great faith. They're people of action and people of faith. You know, they, they work the soil. They break up the soil. They till the ground. They plant a seed. You know, and they have to trust and have faith in the Lord and pray to the Lord of the harvest for rain. If they don't get the early, early rain in, 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 uh, in the Israel area, in Israel and the Middle East, they get earlier rains and later rains specifically. The earlier rains help soften the soil so the, the soil can be turned over. And so it has moisture enough in it for the seeds to germinate. And as they start growing, eventually a later rain comes that helps bring nourishment so that the plants can be brought into maturity and a harvest can be plucked and eventually brought to market. As it is with the Lord in our hearts, he's poured his spirit out initially on the church at the time of Pentecost. And he continues to, as we move closer into the days of the Lord, he continues to pour out his spirit to raise us up, to grow us up from a seed to fruit. Our hearts are much, can, be much, can have times and seasons much like a farmer has to deal with as they're patient. As the seed of the word is planted, sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes my heart can be kind of wintry and kind of hard and kind of cold. And I need the time of the spring, the little bit of rain, the little bit of turning over of the soil for the seed of God's word, for new seeds to be planted and to germinate and start growing. I need the warmth of the summer with some rain so that it can grow up and become what it ought to be and the harvest time in the fall. The patience of a farmer. The faith of a farmer. 
Second example he gives us of patience and suffering is brothers take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Verse 10. We only need to cruise the Old Testament, the minor and the major prophets, and you'll see many prophets who suffered. But they were not dissuaded from preaching the message of repentance the Lord had given them. You know, you, you just, you know, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, right? That guy, he was beaten, he was put in stocks. Uh, he was thrown in a cistern for dead. But he continued to preach the message the Lord had given him. He continued to keep his eyes on the Lord in the midst of it all. Elijah suffered through the drought. Daniel wouldn't bow the, continued to bow his knee to the Lord and would not bow his knee to the land and was thrown in the lion's den and the Lord protected him. He suffered. You could go on. You could talk about Hosea's unfaithful wife to, to learn a lesson of understanding how the Lord feels with an unfaithful people. You can go on and on and on. But they were not dissuaded from teaching the message that the Lord had given. They were not dissuaded from the things of the Lord. Thirdly, he gives the example of the steadfastness of Job in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There's blessing in holding the course. There's blessing and steadfastness. We know the story well. Everyone left Job. He lost it all. Most of his family died. His wife essentially told him to curse the Lord and die. But he said, even though the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, still I will praise the Lord. And at the end, the Lord blessed him for his faithfulness. He wants us to see and understand and know his purposes. He says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The psalmist talks about tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord while in the land of the living. He wants to reveal his nature to us, his grace and his mercy and his compassion. The work of Calvary where Jesus died for our sins and his blood was poured out for us. The purposes of the Lord to give us abundant life, full life, eternal life, treasure in heaven that cannot be destroyed and does not deplete. We're to expect suffering and persecution. It's no surprise. It's actually a promise of scripture. Paul again said to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sometimes I don't like hearing that, but we will be persecuted how it looks may be different. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom, there's the importance, not just what you believe, but knowing whom you believe, knowing Jesus Christ personally. And how from a childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation. We're to expect suffering but we're to endure patiently with long suffering. There's an interesting little side note in the middle of verses 8 through 11-ish. And in verse 9, it says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Sometimes when we're under persecution or we're feeling a little beat up, it's easy to grumble. 
It's easy to grumble against maybe the things of the Lord. Maybe it's easy to grumble about our fellow believers. Maybe it's easy to grumble about the situation that the Lord has placed us in at this time. Impatience, we're called to be patient, right? It's interesting what impatience does. Impatience tends to breed grumbling. We need only think of the Israelites in the desert. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. Oh, he's been gone. He's been gone for a long time. What are we to do? Well, how about we take our back pay, our gold, and we form a calf and worship it. It's very interesting that the grumbling and lack of patience quickly leads to idolatry. It's a danger in your life and in mine that we don't be people that grumble. Don't grumble against one another. Let's keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to put off the old things. If you flip to Colossians 3, there's a great list there. And he says, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Later on, we're to put on compassionate hearts, love, let the peace of Christ rule, thankfulness, admonish one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and thankfulness in your hearts to God. Patience is a virtue that God honors in suffering. And it's a great testimony as it builds long suffering. As it says in, in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, we talked about that. The, the patience that's built and the long suffering as we go through tough things. So the call, I believe, is to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, looking forward to the prize, patiently enduring. Verse 12, he says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. A lot of guys made the point, you know, it's easy when you're under persecution to say things that you don't or shouldn't because you're under pressure, under difficulty. Let's not be, bring bad, false testimony when we swear in the name of God, I won't do this, I won't do this. We're to simply be people of our word. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that what you say simply be yes or no. Nothing more than this comes from evil. Or not anything more comes from evil. We're to simply be trustworthy people, reliable people. James shifts gears again and he carries on about, well, he shifts gears a little bit and talks about prayer and suffering. Verses 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth, and he prayed, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
First off, prayer. Is any of you suffering? Let them pray. Is any of you cheerful? Let them sing praise. I would actually like to add to James' words here. I hope it's not heresy. But I would say is if any of you suffering, let him pray. Let him praise. Is any of you cheerful? Let him praise. Let him pray. I don't know about you guys, but if I am downtrodden, there's nothing that raises my countenance quicker in a way than praise to the Lord. You know, I, I, I can go through highs and lows. Um, and sometimes I find, a, sometimes lows hit me as I'm trying to study for something. Uh, sometimes I find if I go pick up my guitar and I play and sing a song to the Lord, it, he lifts me up as I offer a sacrifice of praise unto him. And as I do that, I need to be reminded to pray for his help. We're to pray in all circumstances and all at all times. We're not to be anxious about anything, Paul says in Philippians, but in all things, with prayer and petition and thanksgiving, present our requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. One guy I read, he said, I kind of liked it. He said, maturity is singing praises and praying when in trouble. I like it. I like it. The idea of singing and praising when we're in trouble. Later on in the verse, it even talks about calling the elders in when we're in trouble. Maybe you can't utter the words, but you call the elders in to come pray with you. But coming before the Lord in our times of need. You know, the question sometimes is asked, is sickness and suffering due to sin? And as we come to this passage, it, it kind of begs that question. And as you cruise the pages of Scripture, I would say that sin and suffering can be because of sin. Sin and suffering sometimes is not because of sin. And sin and suffering sometimes simply has been allowed by the Lord for Him to be glorified. David in Psalm 32, after his sin with Bathsheba, he talked about the, what happens with unconfessed sin. He says, For I kept silent and my bones wasted away. Through, uh, wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up or changed. As if in the heat of summer he was physically oppressed by the weight of his sin. But then when Jesus and the disciples were walking along and there was the blind guy who had been blind since, since birth, the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. And Jesus answered, it was not the man that sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes God allows things. Look at the story of Job. He was allowed to be sifted. But he gave glory to God through it all. So is any of you sick? Is any of you suffering? Let him call on the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. And it's interesting, I didn't really realize this till this week, but it says call the elders. When we're sick and trouble, we're to call out to the elders. We're to ask them to come. There's an element of the onus being ask the elders to come. As being in leadership here in the church, we want to come and pray with you. We want to come 
and bring your case before the Lord and lay hands on you and anoint you with oil. Sometimes we don't know what's going on. Call on the Lord. You know, I think of Jairus. His daughter was sick, right? What did he do? He went and he found the Lord Jesus Christ. Come. He called upon the Lord. And here it's a, it's a call. Call the leaders to come and pray with you. I find it also very interesting. It doesn't say call a faith healer or anything. It says call the elders. Call the leaders who God has appointed in his church. God has provided all his church needs for life and godliness. So it's that a prayer of, we're to pray with a prayer of faith, expecting God to do work. We're to anoint with oil in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord. The idea of the oil is it's nothing fancy in the oil. I have a little bottle here. It's oil. It's not purified oil. It hasn't been blessed by someone. It's oil. It's a symbol. It's an element. Just like the symbols of communion are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the work that the Lord does through his Holy Spirit. The oil does not heal. The Lord heals. But the oil is an act of, of we bring this person before you, Lord. May you pour your spirits out in healing. It's a symbol. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. You know, the Lord wants to first heal us spiritually before he heals us physically. He the Lord sometimes feels, heals physically and sometimes he is glorified by us going home. I was reminded recently that God was never more glorified than in death. When Jesus died for our sins, God was never more glorified than at the cross. But he also healed many. He also heals so let's call when we're sick. Let's call the elders in and ask for healing. And let's ask a prayer of faith that the Lord would heal us both physically and spiritually. He wants us to be whole. And the Lord will raise him up. I find it very interesting. He says, if he has, <clears throat> if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The idea isn't that we air all our dirty laundry before the church and before everyone at all times. The idea isn't that we go into a confessional booth and confess to one person. No man can forgive sins. Only Jesus Christ, through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, can our sins be forgiven. But what we can do is we can intercede on your behalf that the Lord will help you through your sin, that the Lord will lead you into repentance, that the Lord will heal those wounds. You know, unconfessed sin, I think of like a cancer that's inside your body that you don't, well, you know something's not right and it's eating up the insides. Confess sin, 
first before the Lord, because he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And secondly, to share our burdens one to another so we can support each other lovingly in prayer. And I'm off my notes and I kind of lost my train of thought. but we're to confess our sins to one another, not to air our laundry. Sometimes we need to confess our sins to someone that we've wronged and ask for forgiveness. God heals, not the oil. Let's not be worried about God's reputation. You ever do that? You go, oh man, if I pray, pray a big prayer of faith and God doesn't do what I think he's going to do, how's God going to look? You ever been in that spot? I was reminded in my studies this week that God's big enough to deal with his own reputation. As long as he is glorified, that is what matters. When we confess our sins before him, sometimes to one another, it promotes prayer in our lives. It provides protection and freedom from our sin. It prohibits pride in our life and produces praise and thanksgiving to the Lord who heals us from our sins. If someone's confessing sins to you, it's not to be shared in a sharing way. Oh, this so-and-so. This is confidential, caring within the body. I believe that confessing of our sins is directly healed to God's healing work in our lives. It says that the regular man with a prayer of faith, a man as simple as Elijah. You know, Elijah was a sinner. Elijah wasn't perfect. Elijah was a man who struggled, I believe, with some element of depression. He had fear. Do you know that at Mount Carmel, after Mount Carmel, he was fearful of Ahab? He ran and he hid. And the Lord came and ministered to him. I kind of get it. I kind of get the feeling sometimes of ups and downs. I get it. But he was a man just like us and he prayed fervently and the Lord moved incredibly. He sought the will of God. You know, we seek the will of God primarily through his word. And the, living word point, the written word points us to the living word as the Holy Spirit pours out his discernment on us. You know, prayer is more powerful than nuclear power and fission. More powerful than... You know, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It's the most powerful thing on the earth. And it's simple men and women who humble themselves before the Lord and ask in faith and the Lord will move. We're to seek his faith. We're to be believing and persistent. And then he finishes up the chapter. Watch what I'm going to be going long here. Verses 19 and 20. And I'll try to be reasonably quick. It says, My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, in a way, it's a summation, I think, of the book of James. It's faith that works. It's coming back and being open before the Lord, letting him do work in our lives. Maybe we've slipped into some measure of carnality it says wandered when it's talking about believers who have wandered a bit from the truth. 
First thing that obviously happens in wandering is a slight little variation of path, of course. You got your eyes set on the light, but something has, allowed you, has caused you to just make a slight little change. I think it starts in our doctrine and our belief. We, maybe we, we start questioning something or we struggle in our doctrine and it, it, it comes out in our demonstration. Or we struggle in our creed and it comes out in our conduct and we struggle in our profession and it comes out in our practice. But we're to, we're to, want, we're to draw people back to the Lord. Draw them back to the elementary truths of Jesus Christ, to his shed blood at the cross, his forgiveness for sins, his grace, our justification by faith in him, a faith that works as James will teach us. When I think of a living, active faith, there's three elements that are so important in our faith. One, our profession we believe in our heart, Jesus Lord, and confess with our mouths that he, I'm mixing it up. If we believe in our heart that Jesus Lord and confess with our mouths that he raised him from the dead, we will, oh my goodness. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Oh, Lord have mercy. But our profession, our practice, and our perseverance are markers of the Christian life that we go the long haul. We're to bring back a sinner and a wanderer. I'm not going to get into semantics if you hear about can someone lose their salvation or not. The point is, is bringing someone back. You're either, maybe we're talking about someone who's maybe professed but hadn't moved into their practice or something like that. Or maybe it's just someone who simply slipped into carnality or maybe we find our hearts have slipped into some carnality we're to come back. It should be our instinct. Like when we see a car accident and someone's hurt and bleeding, our instinct is to give first aid and save physical life, isn't it? The temporal. Our instinct should be to save and administer first aid in a spiritual realm. Faith that works. Chapter five, I think of, have I honored God with the resources he's given me? Do I have patience to endure the suffering with my eyes kept on Jesus Christ? As I suffer, as I'm sick, have I sought the Lord in prayer? Have I asked the leaders of the church to come and anoint me with oil and pray over me? Have I confessed my sins first to the Lord and secondly to the offended brother and asked people to help me and support me in prayer? faith that works. This morning Murray and Beth are going to close us in a couple, maybe one or two songs here. Um, you know what? If anyone would like some prayer, maybe you're sick, maybe you're struggling, maybe you're in trials and tribulations, uh, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, Jerry and I are going to be over here. If you need to be anointed with oil and ask the Lord and the power of his Holy Spirit to heal you of an infirmity, to heal you spiritually. We'd love to do that with you. So this morning, let's just turn our hearts to the Lord and ask him to help us to have faith that works. Amen?